0: Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Matthew Continetti, who is a resident fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work focuses on American political thought and history. Mr. Cottonetti was the founding editor and the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He's also a contributing editor at National Review and a columnist for Commentary Magazine. Thanks for joining the podcast, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me. So, Matt, when I think of you, for some reason, maybe you can tell me why this would occur to me. I always think of that documentary, and it was first it was a book called Arguing the World. I'm <laughs> sure you know it about Irving Cristobal and Bell and Glazer and Howe. And I always want to ask you. Of those four, who's your favorite?
2: Well, that's a simple question for me to answer. It would be Irving Kristol. But I recommend that documentary, Arguing the World to to Everyone. I show it to my students when I teach the history of the conservative movement as part of the Hertog political studies program. And I'm always enlivened, invigorated by the reaction of the students. One, they find it funny that Irving House sounded almost exactly like Bernie Sanders.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: But two, arguing the world is really about the New York intellectuals, these children of immigrants at the first half of the 20th century who lived in New York, obviously, and wrote for magazines like Partisan Review and Commentary Magazine, and took ideas seriously, took culture seriously, took politics seriously, not partisan politics, but grand politics, the politics of the regime and of constitutionalism and also totalitarianism very seriously, and they argued with such passion about these big ideas. I'm always struck by how the students watch that movie or read the work of Irving Kristol or Daniel Bell or Nathan Glazer, or Irving Howe, and come away with kind of almost an elegiac feeling. Like they say to me, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could recapture that type of intellectual community and combat? And well, I agree it would be nice, I think it's a lost world in a lot of ways.
1: Well, how are they different? Who is the most conservative in our parlance and the most liberal or does that sort of terminology not work for the four of them?
2: No, I think it does. Irving Crystal was by far the most conservative. The thing about what groups these four men together, how Crystal, Bell and Glazer is they all went to City College during the depression and graduated right before World War II America entered World War II. And while they were there they were involved in the Trotskyist politics. So they were radicals while they were in college. They weren't Stalinists, so they didn't support Joseph Stalin and the program of the Soviet Union, but they did support Leon Trotsky, who had been the Bolshevik revolutionary, but now was in exile in Mexico at the time. And so they all came to radical politics as young people, but then one by one slowly drifted away from radicalism. Crystal was really the first to go he writes that he was de-radicalized by the time World War II was over. And really, his service in World War II was part of that de-radicalization. He liked to joke that he was part of this group of enlisted men who hailed from kind of uh, rough neighborhoods in the Chicago suburbs that were heavily involved with organized crime. And his encounters with his fellow soldiers convinced him that no socialist paradise could work when people are so disagreeable. Bell, Glazer, they became de-radicalized more slowly. They eventually settled into kind of a anti-communist liberalism. And then Glazer, more than Bell, became at least affiliated with the neoconservative label. And Irving Howe, he left Trotskyism and basically became a democratic socialist. So he'd be the farthest left of the four. And Irving Kristol, who quite controversially endorsed Richard Nixon for re-election in 1972, and became Republican, really, in that election, he would be on the right.
1: Now, moving to the little bit of history to what's happened most recently, I want to ask you about President Trump's impact on the conservative movement and where he fits in the history of conservatism. And I think that some people seem to think that he's sort of an anomaly, he came out of nowhere, and he's something completely new and unusual to conservatives. But I have a sense that you're not so sure about that, or you don't agree there's always been kind of a blue collar, working class, rough sort of aspect to conservative politics in the United States and in the UK. Am I right about that or or not?
2: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. There are many precursors to Donald Trump in American history. In many ways, populism in America is older than conservatism or certainly older than the American conservative movement, which really didn't coalesce into kind of a self-conscious political movement until after the Second World War. So with populism, you can go as far back as the the original Boston Tea Party, go to the Whiskey Rebellion and kind of the post-revolutionary period, and on through Andrew Jackson, and on through the William Jennings Bryan, and Joseph McCarthy, and George Wallace, Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, Sarah Palin, and then culminating in the presidency of Donald Trump. One thing that makes Trump so unusual is he actually won the presidency, (laughs) Brian ran four times as a Democratic nominee. He never made it. The highest office he reached was Secretary of State under Wilson. Trump won by a very narrow margin in several states, which gave him the the Electoral College victory in 2016. So Trump is part of this kind of, I call it the sine wave of American populism. And he also fused that populism, which is basically an anti-elitism, a suspicion of institutions, a revolt against the sense that elites are trying to govern from above when really the people below should have more control over their lives and over their society. He combined that with basically remnants or parts of what we consider the conservative movement. So he reached out and he got the Second Amendment group behind him. He reached out, he got the tax cutters behind him with this big tax cut He reached out, he got the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement behind him. And he has always had, quite shockingly to many people, a strong connection with the religious right, and uh, they've continued to back him. Although in lesser numbers, it should be noted in 2020, which is one reason he probably lost. Nonetheless, though, Trump is this conservative populist. There's no question about it. Everything Trump does goes to the extreme. So he is both very conservative and very populist. And it's the more populist side of his presidency that I think ended up rubbing a lot of voters the wrong way.
1: So what is your explanation for his loss? What happened?
2: Well, I think the first thing that needs to be said is he almost won. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that in itself is pretty incredible. When, when you consider, one, he never reached 50% popularity in the Gallup poll throughout four years of his presidency, which no other president can lay claim to. I don't think they'd want to lay claim to that record. Nonetheless, he got about 48% of the popular vote. And interestingly enough, he won the late deciders in the exit poll, which shows that there was clearly some momentum for Trump in the final week of the campaign. Unfortunately, a lot of people had already made up their minds and indeed had already voted. I think one reason, perhaps the central reason Trump lost, is that the suburbs turned against him. According to the exit polls, he improved his standing among almost every demographic in the country except white voters and the pretty well-off white voters who dwell in the suburbs, who actually supported Donald Trump in 2016. They turned against him in 2020. And they did so, I think it can easily, easily be stated. They did so because of his personality. They were tired of the way he treated people. They were tired of the way he spoke on Twitter. They were tired of kind of the zigzags of his leadership style. And so it was the suburbs that cost him the election.
1: And there's a little bit of back and forth on Twitter today or yesterday about the turnout and the vote and his share of the vote in the cities, quote, unquote, the cities, which I'm from Brooklyn, and when people say the cities, they're talking about black people. What's the story there?
2: Well, it's actually a story that Trump should be proud of. Unfortunately, it cuts against his claims of voter fraud. And so as often the case, some of his arguments are contradictory. But the truth is Trump improved the vote share among all minorities, black men, young black men in particular. And so he did quite well, or at least well by comparison to four years ago, in a lot of cities. And even more interestingly, I think he really improved his standing among Hispanic voters in Florida and Texas in particular. And that, I think, gives us a sense of where American politics might go for the next four years.
1: So if Trump has a powerful political constituency, big numbers, which he clearly does. He did very well and is there someone who can inherit that strength and and have it as strong as he does without being him?
2: It's very hard to say and I'm somewhat skeptical. When you look at populist leaders, a lot of the loyalty tends to be personal, tied to the figure. In this case with Jackson, I think that was the case with a rare non-demagogic populist to Ronald Reagan. But you can see that the attachment to Ronald Reagan didn't really translate past the 1988 election, which his vice president won and kind of giving him a third term. So I'm a little bit skeptical that the 70 million plus people who voted for Donald Trump will immediately transfer their loyalty or be as enthusiastic. I think there's no way they'd be as enthusiastic for anyone other than Trump. At the same time, I think Donald Trump does present Republicans with a way of approaching the electorate that I think many Republican politicians will imitate.
0: Do you think that kind of cult of personality makes it more likely that Trump will run again in 2024? And would that potentially be a damaging thing for the Republican Party in the long term if it becomes kind of so personal to him, his appeal?
2: Well. There's a lot to say about that. I mean, the first thing to say is Trump actually hasn't been as damaging to the Republican Party as I think a lot of people assumed he would be. Weirdly, his coattails and defeat were longer than Joe Biden's were in victory. I mean, when mm-hmm. you consider the gains that the Republicans made in the House of Representatives, the fact that the only governor's mansion switch hands was in Montana, and that went to a Republican, that, in fact, the state legislatures, Republicans remain in control, which sets them up for redistricting after the 2020 census complete. So I disagree with those who say that Donald Trump has destroyed the Republican Party or will continue to do so. I mean, you think about the way that he improved the Republican standing in Texas and Florida. If you recall, mm-hmm. just a couple weeks ago, people were saying, oh, Texas would be lost. And with that, that'd be the end of the Republican Party. Finally, with the Senate, of course, we still don't know which party will control it. But The very possibility that it's the 50-50 best-case scenario for the Biden administration means that the progressive dream of basically legislating the GOP out of existence through abolishing the Electoral College, admitting new states to the union, packing the court, that's dead. So to your second part of your question, would Trump run again? I honestly don't know. I'm somewhat skeptical of that. And I just always go back to something my first boss in Washington, Fred Barnes, told me early on, which is that the future in politics is never a straight line projection of the present. I mean, you just think about it, you know, six years ago, 2014, Republicans had a good midterm election. We assumed, oh, look, we have this wonderful field of all these accomplished Republican, young Republican senators, governors, and of course, who came down the escalator (laughs) six months later and ends up winning the presidency. We just don't
1: know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Since you've brought up history and figures from the past, I wondered, I just have to ask you sort of a personal question concerning your writing in the past. There were those who thought that the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, represented some potential attraction to the the working people of America against the elites. That didn't really work out. But is Trump a little vindication for people who thought that?
2: Well, right. I, um, <laughs> I think he is. Well, it didn't work out for Palin mainly because she didn't let it work out and her own. Political situation in Alaska, and then her own, you know, her kind of chaotic personal life interfered with her pursuing a higher office. But clearly, her debut on the national stage in 2008, I think, showed where American politics was headed. And that was in a politics of basically kind of conflict between credentialed elites in both parties and the people, some of them elites themselves, who reject the consensus view of the messages you get out of so-called mainstream media and such, Palin was definitely an arbinger of Trump. And it just shows, again, how this phenomenon of of populism is kind of built into American politics and culture. So even if Trump were never to run again for office, there will always be people who feel this way, opposition to elites, and this feeling that America needs to be driven by below, not ruled from above.
1: So last question on Trump before we go to your book and bigger, longer term projects. He did better than expected. He had coattails down ticket. Republicans look like they either held the Senate or or it's a tie. It was a good night for people that care about the Republicans and not a great night for Democrats. And they fought and bickered about it. And I don't know if you saw Bill Maher's little diatribe Unlocked. the other day. So everything's going well. And then the president decides to question the legitimacy of the election without any facts to back him up. Is this hurting him? Will this hurt him? Well, it will
2: probably hurt him in the eyes of the historians when they write the kind of the denouement to the 2020 election. won't hurt him in the eyes of his supporters, and it's totally in character. I think it, what's happening now is terrible, but I'm, I can't say I'm surprised in the least. And Trump kind of telegraphed this strategy months ago when he began his campaign against mail-in voting and talking about the potentials for fraud and such. So I think the way to understand Trump supporters is they don't believe in any kind of third-party validating institution that a lot of people do. So, for example, you know, the media, they don't don't believe in anything they hear from most media, including now Fox News. (laughs) They don't believe pollsters. And in fact, pollsters gave them plenty of reasons not to believe them this cycle. They don't believe what the big tech companies say. They're primed to believe that the election was stolen from Trump, which is...
1: But wait, Matt. The attractiveness of populism is based on some element of truth in the populists' condemnation of the elites. There are things about the elites that they do that are dishonest and wrong. Bill Maher's diatribe was about common sense versus silliness. Mm-hmm. And so when Trump appeals to that part of the populist world, it's based on some facts. The Iraq War was kind of not so great for working class Americans who went and served and lost their lives in it. There are other aspects of his argument concerning racial preference and admissions and other things where there are facts that back up their argument. Right. But there are no facts here. And they they have to see that.
2: Well, I mean, I think what you said, Robert, is identifies kind of the positive signs of populism, but there are also negative signs <laughs> to it. And one long running negative feature of populism is conspiracy theory. And so it just doesn't surprise me that many of these populists are going to believe in a false conspiracy theory that somehow there was systemic voter fraud. This is why populism is such a combustible element in American politics, is because like you say, populists often make good observations, but then they're also easily tempted by a demagogy. Sometimes they begin scapegoating portions of the population or institutions which stand for portions of the population. I think the way that a lot of people talk about banks, for example, and then the final real weakness is this conspiracist view of the world.
1: All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Got to take the good and the bad. Take
1: the bad but I. I do feel that there's an element to what is attractive to Trump, attractive about Trump to Americans that is based in facts on the ground. There are some aspects of open and free trade with China that were harmful for some communities. Immigration does often drive down wages in low-income communities. But this, you need some basis for it. It can't be just made up.
2: Luckily, that's what the judges are telling them <laughs> to the Trump yeah. lawyers. So I don't anticipate that any of these challenges will be successful.
1: So, Matt, tell us about your book.
2: Well, I've completed a history of the American conservative movement, really an intellectual, slightly political history that basically takes its bearings from kind of the Woodrow Wilson's presidency and goes through the end of Donald Trump's first term anyway. <laughs> but. It's a long book. My method is basically to sketch out the types of personalities, the key thinkers, and then describe kind of the ways in which they related to each other and also disagreed. I think that's one of the bigger themes of my book is that conservatives have always disagreed amongst themselves over many serious issues. And that when we look at the right today, the fact is many of the debates that are taking place, already took place decades ago and are likely to take place again decades hence. Who's the hero? I don't know if there is a hero in this book. I would say William F. Buckley Jr. and Ronald Reagan come out as the key figures. When I started the book, I thought that I would try to de-emphasize Ronald Reagan. And then, of course, I got to his administration and found out I couldn't do that at all. So I think there's something like four chapters on Reagan. Buckley and National Review were very important in the early parts of the book. I write a, quite a bit about James Burnham, who's a thinker who really fascinates me. And then I also talk about the neoconservatives and Crystal and, and others. But what's funny about American conservatism is the story hasn't really ever been told in full. And so I try to do that. What that means is it's just wide ranging. And so we discussed the conservative legal movement and Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork and we go into the debates over the Iraq War, the first and the second one. I spent a lot of time writing about Pat Buchanan, which I think, I'm not sure I, I anticipated doing that, but Buchanan is a pretty important figure in this book. So there are a lot of figures, but I'd say that Reagan probably stands the tallest.
1: As you probably know better, way better than me, there's a theory of American political history that involves cycle, that we have long sort of liberal cycle reigns, and then they turn to conservative reigns. And and sometimes the turning point in this one is, you know, 32 to 72, and then 72 until, well, until when? If there were cycles in American politics, are we at the end of a conservative reign, or or do you not buy into any of that?
2: I think that the the cycles of American history thesis kind of can match up when Arthur Schlesinger, senior, I think, not junior, but senior came up with it you know, he's been dead for a long time. And so I think the cycle stopped, actually, in 1992. And when you look at American politics since 1992, what you have is a politics of stalemate. There's no question about it. And the results of this most recent election confirm it. We are basically a 50-50, you know, kind of 52-48, 48-48 in the House vote, 50-50 in the Senate. We're a 50-50 nation. And we are a nation of two parties that are closely divided electorally, but deeply divided ideologically. So the two parties really do have opposing worldviews and are divided, you know, on the basis of sociology, on basis of religion, I think, is probably the most important divide. But that's not really a cycle, because what we've had is kind of control of our political institutions swinging back and forth in various ways and degrees between the two parties and the two Americas, if you will, now almost for 30 years. I don't know when that will cease.
1: Well, speaking of that, so in other words, your projection is that the stalemate continues. I think you wrote a piece called The Stalemate or something just the other day. And so tell us what it's going to be like in Washington under Biden and with a Republican Senate and a very closely divided House.
2: Well, I think I'm struck by the optimism of a lot of political observers, many of whom are my friends. People say, "Oh, well, Biden, he's been around forever. He knows Mitch McConnell. He's promised to unify the country, so we're going to have, you know, 4 years of comedy and moderation and bipartisanship." You know, I'd love to see that. Of course, that depends on what the bipartisanship brings us in my view, but I'm skeptical. Go to 2000, very similar result, an even closer election. George W. Bush pledges to unite the country. The Senate is 50-50. Republicans control it with Cheney's tiebreaker for a few months before Jim Jeffords becomes a Democrat and flips it to Democratic control. But So basically tied, narrow Republican majority in the House. Well, did the country really unite in, in, during mm-hmm. George W.'s first term? I mean, there was that brief period where we, we united because of the cataclysm of 9-11, but even that in the year, the two parties were squabbling again. When the parties are this divided in their worldviews, I, I, I think the chances of bipartisanship are pretty low. I, and especially because of the powers of the bureaucracy, it'll be very tempting for President Biden and, in fact, many Obama alumni are already telling him to do this, to simply bypass the Congress and say, well, I'm gonna enact most of my agenda through executive order. Now, that's what Obama did. That's what Trump did to a large degree. If Biden does it, I think our polarization will will only continue.
1: Polarization, stalemate, are they necessarily bad for the day-to-day life of Americans in wages, earnings, jobs, schools?
2: Not if these things, which often are described as gridlock, stop bad policies from being enacted. I'm one of those constitutionalists who think that divided government is a feature, not a bug. But there's a public policy outcome... In which a lot of bad things can be prevented through divided government. On the other hand, there is also the civic culture outcome, which is less reassuring. I think polarization is clearly damaging our civic culture in ways that are obvious in the media. And even while the media does not represent at all most Americans, there is just something that's not only tiresome and coarsening about the way that polarization plays out in the media or in or in the tech world, but it also kind of has become self-fulfilling so that, you know, this endless spiral of provocation and outrage never really resolves itself. Now, our own lives might be fine because the economy will recover, income will rise gradually. But for us as citizens, I think there is a downside.
1: Yeah, but but doesn't that presuppose from, and sort of disappointment coming from you that You think all things are handled from Washington, which is polarized and divided. But at the local level, I don't know that that polarization is quite so dramatic. Well, the government. If you're stalemated uh, in the federal government, you could get, it doesn't mean you can't get things done at the local level.
2: Oh, that's right. I mean, that's a feature of the federal system. It does seem to me, though, that that old Tip O'Neill saw that all politics is local. I don't think that's really true anymore. Yeah. I think I think a lot of politics is national. Just look at the way that the governors have and the mayors have reacted to kind of President Trump, whether it's on coronavirus or whether it's on the law and order issue after the civil disturbances of the summer. I mean, you could more or less just know what a governor or mayor will do based on what they think of President Trump. The same is that the schools, you know, I know we're in the middle right now of this huge surge in coronavirus cases and that's affecting school openings and closures. But when a Brookings scholar looked at this earlier in the year, he found that the thing that the single greatest factor in whether schools remained open or closed was the share of the vote that went to Donald Trump in twenty sixteen. So I agree. There there are plenty of great stuff that can be done at the local or state level or municipal level, but I do believe our politics is very national today. And and that goes through the media and the way that people interact, especially on social media, where something you know, something that doesn't affect our lives at all, you know, some random story from another state that touches on a culture war issue can easily bloom into something that occupies cable news attention for three days.
1: I've been impressed by the response to the virus by Baker in Massachusetts, <laughs> DeWine in Ohio, Hogan in Maryland. I saw Asa Hutchinson on TV the other day He's telling the president to give it up. Mm-hmm. Republican governor from Arkansas. These are people that are very connected to their local state issues. I don't know. I just don't know that that egregious polarization that divides and stalemates us operates all through the country.
2: Yeah. I'm a follower of Morris Fiorina's Hoover and Stanford. One of Fiorina's big points is that our political class polarized, not the American people. And I very much agree with that. And because of yeah,
1: that... That's yeah. very good. We have an scholar yeah, and then you scholar mm-hmm. mm-hmm. citing mm-hmm. a Hoover School. scholar on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, that's that's not good form. <laughs> well, he's
2: a... I'll make him an honorary AI. scholar. There professor. you go. I'm mm-hmm. kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course.
0: So as we head into, you know, this next divided era of government with such a close presidential race, potentially Republican Senate, Do you think that the Biden administration, but also Congress, is there a mandate that kind of came from this election? And if so, what do you think it is?
2: I know I'm being this perennial contrarian. I don't really believe in mandates either. (laughs) uh, uh, I think the biggest mistake the two parties make is they interpret an electoral mandate, you know, winning with an ideological mandate. Mm -hmm. And that invariably causes them to overreach. And then at the next election, we have the response to the overreach. And Now, clearly, you have to think you have a mandate, because why else are you doing this? And so Biden goes out there when the race was called for him, and he says, I have a mandate. I have a mandate to crush the virus, unleash the economic recovery. And then he said, root out systemic racism, his words. And then the fourth item of his mandate was climate change. So I think most Americans don't have any problems with the first two items on his list. But then once you start getting to rooting out systemic racism or climate change policies, which inevitably will affect employment in the oil and gas sector, the coal sector, then I think controversy will resume. And let's not forget, when Biden is in control and begins appointing his cabinet secretaries, the executive agencies will begin unveiling policies that will not be uniformly praised. That's the health and human services, whether it's Are they going to resume litigation against the Little Sisters of the Poor? That's the Department of Education. I'm actually quite shocked at the degree to which, I shouldn't be shocked, but the degree to which Biden is involving the two teachers unions in planning for the education department. I think that will certainly lead to controversy, especially about the issue of school closures, also charter schools. So all these things are real areas ripe for overreach
1: say, I want to go back to those first two because they don't exactly line up either. Crushing the virus and reinvigorating the economy aren't working together right now. I mean, I'm fascinated by the Biden approach to the virus, given the raging pandemic that's happening now. If you read the major newspapers, the pandemic's worse now than it's ever been. And yet they are very hesitant to call for the sort of, nationwide lockdown that their experts might be advocating for. And I noticed you wrote a piece I thought was very good, The Next Populist Revolt, which I think sort of said, if they try that again, there's going to be a revolt against that. Did the virus, ironically, for some voters, work in Trump's favor because they liked his approach to dealing with the virus? I think the
2: answer is absolutely. And that, I think, was one of the surprises from the exit polling that came out is that the coronavirus pandemic has not hurt President Trump as much as people assumed that it would. Now certainly it, it's hurt him in some places. The way that he messaged it, his demeanor during his show in the spring, the press briefings and, and then also the kind of the chaos surrounding his diagnosis and hospitalization, that probably hurt him, I think. But the larger argument that The cure can't be worse than the disease, which he he says all the time. I think that did strike a chord with many voters. And there is a great reluctance, I think, on the part of many, many Americans to have another lockdown or stay-at-home order imposed from above. It would be very controversial. I know that many municipalities and some states are already going back in to a form of lockdown. And so I would anticipate that there would be some reaction to it.
1: And the Biden people are being careful and reluctant.
2: Yeah, they are. They, you know, they have two, you know, Zeke Emanuel is on the COVID advisory board. He's, he said it should be considered. And then I believe his name is Michael Osterholm from Minneapolis. He is very vocal in supporting it, another lockdown. But you're right, the Biden himself and his core team have kind of tried to make any grand, grand declarations about what should be done. Other than they are going to pursue a mask mandate, though you know, with, I think, mixed success. And that, too, will lead to a culture war battle Mm -hmm. Sadly,
0: So, I mean, one of the the items you mentioned on kind of this progressive wish list that, you know, may be off the table for now, given the, the state of the Senate is the elimination of the Electoral College. I wanted to ask, that seems like one of those things that there's growing popularity for that path, even if Biden doesn't make that a priority. Should conservatives be more vigorous about defending the Electoral College? And what should that defense be?
2: Well, I'm a defender of the Electoral College. And I think conservatives have done a pretty good job defending it. I mean, at least conservative intellectuals. The defense is complicated, because it's about, you know, balancing the interests of the different regions, about ensuring that no two states, in the case of, you know, New York and California determine the presidential elections. There are other secondary arguments, which is that towards just a popular vote that determined the president, we have the potential for breaking up the, the two-party system, right? Because you wouldn't need necessarily a majority. You could have pluralities still win. I think that would be harmful to democratic legitimacy. I think if you're an American conservative, you basically believe that the founders were right. They had glaring weaknesses. They had to make horrible compromises. But their vision of what self-government looks like and the constitutional architecture necessary to preserve individual liberty should be defended. That's what, in my view, American conservatives ought to defend. And so the Electoral College is part of that. Mm-hmm. What's odd is that the Electoral College has just become an elector allocating mechanism. Where The founders themselves thought the, the electors would have even more independence and judgment in the selection of the president or in the ratification of the vote for the president. But nonetheless, even though it's changed, function has changed, I still think it has value and we should continue to defend it.
1: So, from Electoral College to popular culture, I have to ask whether you have seen this television series, Schitt's Creek. <laughs> no.
2: <Okay.
1: laughs> <answer would> be <laughs> Matt, no. I want you to see it. It's very. Okay.
2: I've it, heard about it, it and I like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara very much from their appearances in the Christopher Guest movies. I was a little bit annoyed at how that show swept all of the Emmys.
1: <laughs> Why? Because so did you have I a favorite of, resented, of your own?
2: I resented for that, Robert, so I've avoided it.
1: Was there some show you wanted, you thought clearly was better? Did you have some No, favorite? I
2: just, I kind of got tired of this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny, Matt, I felt the same way. Exactly. <laughs> if everybody likes it that much, it can't be good. There's yeah, something, that's usually my, something my suspicious here. <laughs> the The silly conventional wisdom is pushing something on me. But I have now seen all the way through three seasons, and I binged watched it over the weekend with my wife. It's very good and it's very conservative. I will
2: it's, check it out. We, we and
1: started. it's about the culture, the divide. It's about the coasts and the rich, wealthy elites versus regular Americans, and regular Americans win in this television show, which oh, I that's love. That's
2: good. We, we started the new season of The Crown last night. Yeah, yeah. we uh,
1: we'll get to we'll, yeah. that. We'll get to that. All
0: right. Thanks very much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.